0: Today is October 23rd, 2013, and my guest is Don Boudreau of George Mason University. Don and I share the blog Cafe Hayek. Don, welcome back to Econ Talk.
1: Glad to be here.
0: Our topic for today is the intellectual legacy of Ronald Coase, the Nobel laureate who passed away in September at the age of 102. And Coase was a guest on Econ Talk in May of 2012. Don. Today's guest is a longtime teacher of law and economics, and I thought and contributed to the to the literature. And I thought it'd be nice to talk about Coase's intellectual legacy. So we're going to talk about his most important papers today, of which it's a they're a relatively small number, but it's, incredibly influential.
1: Coase wrote more than most people realize. He wrote, but when you compare his total corpus to uh, that of most Nobel Prize winning economists, it is it is relatively small,
0: shockingly small.
1: Yeah, uh, in terms of Number. Yeah, uh, huge in terms of, of insight per word.
0: And influence on the profession
1: as and, well. Yeah.
0: So we're going to focus, uh, just to give people a heads up, we're going to focus on four of his papers. The two most important are The Nature of the Firm, which was published in 1937 in Economica, and The Problem of Social Costs, which was published in 1960 in the Journal of Law and Economics. But hoping we'll have time at the end uh, to give significant time for The Marginal Cost Controversy, which is 1946 in Economica. Economica. And The Lighthouse in Economics, which is Journal of Law and Economics, 1974.
1: I I believe 74. 74.
0: Uh, And we'll put links uh, as best we can to those. Mm -hmm. There's certainly, uh, some of them may be gated, but, um, and uh, there are also books that have collected those, of course, as essays. But those are the the big four. Uh, He did, as 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 you point out, he wrote other things as well, Mm -hmm. and they're all interesting. Yep. and uh, But those are the four we're, we're going to focus on today, I think, that had the most lasting impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's start with The Nature of the Firm, uh, published in 1937, a long time ago, and yet a paper that still gets a lot of attention.
1: Yeah, uh, The Nature of the Firm and The Problem of Social Cost, these are the two that were, were understandably singled out by the Nobel Prize Committee in 1991 when Coase was awarded, justifiably, the, the Nobel Prize. That paper uh, grew out of a trip that Coase had made with a fellow student, I believe, to the United States, a research trip. He was a student, Coase was, at the London School of Economics, uh, where uh, he encountered Hayek. Hayek was one of his professors. His main professor was Arnold Plant. Uh, Arnold Plant uh, was very interested in accounting um, and did some work in the economics of accounting, as did Coase. And Coase got a fellowship in uh, the early 1930s to travel to the U.S., and he studied actual business organization, and at some point it dawned on him that the way economists talk about the firm, the firm is a black box. We don't really, say, to this day, we don't really say much of what goes on inside of the firm. And some pr- things
0: go in: so, labor, yeah. materials, and things come out: products, Fir- services. Firms
1: are, as we economists say, production functions. Uh, they have uh, certain technologies for transforming inputs into outputs, and they take the input prices given, or if they're monopsonous, they can affect them somehow, and and then they, they produce these outputs. And, and, Coase said, well, let's, 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 that, that may be okay for certain theoretical purposes, but let's investigate. more. why are there firms? It's a, a straightforward question. And very few economists until that time, uh, I say very few, maybe none, but, but certainly very few economists asked the question, why are there firms? They asked, what, what are firms? But why are there firms? And Coase's answer, uh, in a nutshell is there are firms because there are transaction costs. Firms for Coase are institutional devices for dealing with transaction costs, for uh, 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 minimizing the consequences of transactions costs. And we can talk in more detail about I- I- exactly what his theory uh, about that, about the firm was. But it's interesting that Coase wrote that paper in ni- the nature of the firm. He wrote in 1931. So he was 21 years old when he wrote a paper for which he won the Nobel Prize 70 years later.
0: Yeah, I'm going to that, just say that this is the uh, – the, uh, it's Wednesday, October 23rd when we're taping this. So he's – Coase was kind of the Xander Bogarts of economics. <laughs> uh, that's an inside baseball reference for Red Sox fans. Uh, go ahead, Don. I'm sorry about that.
1: Well, it's, it, it's okay. Always good to have a good sports reference when in, in, in the fall – because the fall classic starts tonight with the Red Sox. And, and the Cardinals. Um, and so Coase wrote the paper when he was 21. You think, well, what did I do when I was 21? I was, you know, just struggling with calculus. and (laughs) Uh, And it wasn't published until six years later. I'm sure he polished it a bit. But to this day, The Nature of the Firm, which is a very straightforward article, to this day, The Nature of the Firm remains, uh, the, the foundation of all the best theoretical work that economists do on the theory of the firm. Much has been built upon that foundation. But Coase's fundamental I wanted to say it, remains.
0: It's more than a foundation in the way that, say, the, Adam Smith's work uh, on the wealth of nations is a foundation, which, is, which it is. Mm-hmm. But Coase's uh, article is worth reading today, yes. not just for – of course, the wealth of nations is all, so you can still learn something today from the wealth of nations. But the, I don't know if there are many articles written in 1937 that a modern economist can read profitably, understand, learn something from, and be stimulated by. And, when you said it's straightforward, I think what you meant was it's, it's not theoretical, it's not technical, it's not mathematical. It's, not, it's, it's theoretical, it's, 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 not,
1: it's not mathematical. It's
0: not mathematical, it's bristling with insight and interesting observations.
1: Yes, and, and, and the fundamental insight is this. Coase uh, the, the, asked, uh, look, we economists have this theory that shows that, that resources are allocated by pr- according to prices. Uh, sellers sell to willing buyers and through this process resources uh, and goods and services get moved around the economy from where they're valued less to where they're valued more he said so, so why do we need why do we need firms why why isn't all production why doesn't all production take place across what i call ownership boundaries uh, why does uh, General Motors, for example, uh, owned the Fisher Body Company to pick a famous example later used why, why, why does it why did it buy the Fisher Body Company? Why does General Motors make the bodies for its own automobiles?
0: and by doing so, lose the power of the price system yes. to induce competition yes. excellence, innovation yes, all the things that we like as economists about the market process yes. uh, get when they're put inside a firm have become a top down to be blunt, socialist command and control system that seemingly gives up all the advantages of price and competition.
1: It is is what Hayek, a firm is what Hayek called, and remember, Coase was a student of Hayek. A firm is what Hayek called an organization. It is is administered from on top, and it's it's, uh, uh, conducted according to some conscious direction. And Coase said, so why, why do we have this? If the market's so great, why do we have these uh I think it was Dennis Robertson who called them islands of conscious power in a in you know in a sea of markets. Why do we have these things? And co said, well, it's because look, markets as wonderful as they are, contrary to what uh simple textbook funda- uh, basic economic theory uh, uh might imply, markets have transaction costs. Uh contracting in a market is not costless. People have to worry about the the uh, uh, the honesty of the people with whom they're contracting. They have to worry about the, the, will, will, will the quality of the thing that I'm contracting to buy, will it be what I expect? Uh, sometimes it
0: won't be. I have to then deal with the implications of that. I have to have a contractual or legal way to cope with the surprises.
1: Yes. There are a variety of different, uh, sources of transaction costs. And Coe said when, uh, the transaction costs of using the market are sufficiently high, it's worthwhile to take those transactions out of markets and put them into the firm. Now, the firm itself is not a costless thing to operate. There are costs of operating a firm. Uh, I call these administrative costs. So you have the cost of, of using the markets on one hand versus administrative costs on the other hand. And
0: those costs are?
1: Well, the, 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 the manager of the firm uh has to be consciously uh has to consciously direct workers okay you, you guys when you finish doing that move these uh raw move those um, intermediate products from there to here and then you people uh do it this way paint them green or paint them red or make sure you ship them to Toledo or make sure you ship them to, to Tijuana yeah, so it it has to well, be
0: But that's that's the that's the smallest I mean the but, the, the bigger challenge is you got to figure out what technology to use it, yes w- what skills to use what what mix of people and machinery that normally you just say, well, I'll just go find the cheapest one that meets when you're out in the marketplace. You yes. don't think about this at all. You just, I kind of want to find the cheapest one that meets my quality expectations. Yes. All of a sudden, you have to wonder, am I doing this the best way? Yes. And, and that, and you may not be. So there's those costs of discovering mistakes, et cetera. That's so you've right. You've got loafing, which again, in the, in the competitive external market, you just say, well, you're late. We're done. Yeah. <laughs> I'll find somebody else. But here you're saying the guy says, well, we had this bottleneck. How do you know it's real? So the seems to be the monitoring and uh, quality control product and and decision making process within the firm is the, is is by far yeah
1: yeah, yeah, the yeah biggest of course, cost of course of course you're right yeah so the, the, the general lesson here is Coase is a realist he so said look there there markets aren't perfect administrative direction isn't perfect they both have their costs and in a competitive economy when people are allowed to experiment with different organizational forms and markets aren't uh, constrained. Excessively by regulation to to fit some model, uh, then what will happen is over time, uh, firms will emerge. Depending on the industry, depending on existing technologies, firms will emerge uh, that that uh, minimize uh, the, the the entire costs of transforming raw materials into final products for delivery to. Consumers, you have costs. All you have, still have costs of using markets. You have administrative costs, but if if firms get too large, then the the administrative costs at the margin outweigh the cost of using the market. So firms will shrink. If the cost of using the market are too high at the margin, firms will emerge to 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 reduce those costs and substitute the lower administrative costs with the cost of using the market. All the while lowering the total cost of again transforming raw materials into uh, uh, final outputs, uh, and it's 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 an it's, a, it's an astonishingly simple insight, but no one had it until Coase discovered it. And this is a theme uh, that runs throughout all yeah. of Ronald Coase's work. Um, it's it, the he he recognized when economists overlooked obvious questions, and he asked questions that once they're asked seem important to ask, but no one thought to ask them before Ronald Coase asked them. And that's that's a really important uh, role to play. Uh, and and the nature of the firm is an example of that. Him, why are there firms? Um, I, I've often said about that, it's easier to understand the nature of the firm if you think of it first uh, as Really, a a theory of vertical integration. It, it works for horizontal integration as well, or even conglomerate. Explain forms. what you
0: mean by vertical and horizontal uh, vertical integration. Vertical
1: integration is the economist term for uh, uh, the the integration within one firm of different stages of production. So, I used earlier the example of General Motors and McFisher Body. General Motors makes the bodies, then it attaches the bodies to the chassis, then it puts the motor. In. So you have these different stages of production extending back from the raw material extractive stages where you get iron ore out of the ground all the way to the final stage where you have run a dealership that delivers the product to the final And, consumer. of course, any of those
0: stages you could either outsource, you meaning can get it from outside the firm. Use the market. Use the market. Or you could produce them in-house. Yes. And yeah. they do a mix of both.
1: Yes. And you can imagine, theoretically, you can imagine one firm uh, you know giant corp uh, having its own uh, 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 iron ore exploration uh, division and extracting ore from the ground and smelting the ore turning it into steel turning that steel into auto bodies and, and having rubber its own plantation, rubber, plan- rubber, plan- rubber yeah, plant yeah plant actually for a while tires. for a while i think henry ford did did indeed have that um, all the way to, to actually owning the dealership uh, and but we don't see that we we see general motors doing and, and other programs doing some of it, but not, but not all of it. It contracts out parts of it, both in earlier stages of production and in later stages of production. And Coase's theory is uh, again remains the the starting point for economists understanding uh, why, in particular circumstances, certain processes are integrated within a firm, and why, in other circumstances, uh, the processes occur across ownership boundaries and markets.
0: You know, I, I never thought about it until. Just now, uh, a similar uh, set of factors come into play when I decide what to do on my own inside my house versus hire someone to do. Yes. So we talk in economics about comparative advantage. Uh, that, which one way of saying uh, the way I like one way I like to think about comparative advantage is that self sufficiency is the road to poverty. If you try to do everything for yourself, you're going to be very poor because you have a limited set of both time and skills, and so. But if you think about it, there are a lot of things inside your house that you end up doing for yourself because transaction costs. So you take mm-hmm. out. I mean, I'll just speak for myself. You can. uh Most of us, I think, are in this situation. I take out my own garbage. I change my own light bulbs. So there's, there's a thousand things I do around my house. And you could hire someone to do. That. I could hire to yeah. do. And in fact, the, the previous owner of our house hired someone to change all the light bulbs in a whole set of, of lights in our house because they were up high, and he didn't want to get the ladder, and he was, you know, he didn't want to climb the ladder. Yeah. He didn't have the ladder. He didn't want to climb the ladder, so he paid someone, actually, to change his light bulbs, at least for some of the light bulbs. But the point is is that if I could instantaneously say, oh, I'll give you 75 cents to change a bunch of light bulbs, I might decide not to do that myself. I might let someone pay someone. But the cost of finding that person, getting him to my house, waiting for him, letting him in, all those, quote, transaction
1: costs. De- dealing, with the, uh, dealing with the risk that that person may be dishonest or incompetent. Correct. Yeah.
0: So there are a lot of things that I do inside my house where I don't have a comparative advantage in in a way and I you'd think I would I would contract out for them but but I don't and and that's because this this factor which yep. is a beautiful ex- application
1: just re, just really quickly I heard yesterday that Jerry Jones the owner of the Dallas Cowboys when he's watching the when he's sitting in the owner's box watching a football game he has someone beside him to clean his glasses so when his glasses get dirty he yeah. I don't know if that's true, but I heard someone say that, and sound, it, it sounded like they were telling the truth. So that's really contracting out. To <laughs> yeah, a, to, yeah, he's uh, <laughs> to, an, to another party.
0: And his, but for him, it, I, evidently, I, I, yeah, I clean my own glasses. I, I don't know about yeah, you. I, so do I. Uh, so, so for me, uh, the cost of having someone next to me to do that for me isn't worth it. But for him, evidently, in his situation, is maybe he's not very good at cleaning. I mean, as well, he may be inferior. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe a case of absolute advantage in that case. Um, so. As you said, this is. Uh, I for a few more moments on this paper. Uh, it, it seems like a simple. In, you said it's a simple insight. Mm-hmm. W- one view is that uh, you know it's like many insights, as you say. Insight that no one had before. Coase Correct. Had it. So yeah. it's one of these things. Oh well, that's obvious. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was, but it wasn't obvious at the time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, but it's more than just that it was obvious, and, and now we know it. it. It has implications, and has had implications for research in uh, industrial organization, of course. We're going to apply in a minute to um, the case of externalities and public policy, which mm-hmm. is what Coase came to to do in his next paper. The next paper we're going to talk about, but talk if you can. Besides the fact that it quote explains why firms use socialism within the firm, and of course some firms use market competition within. They do things in house, but they still try to leverage the price system. They might have competing divisions. I know there are retailers that. Uh, their stores. They have an in-house arm that creates clothing for their their retail stores, but the store the retail store is allowed to buy from anyone. Mm-hmm. So they're not forced to buy from the in-house supplier. They can <coughs> buy from anyone. So there's competition forcing that in-house supplier to compete with the outside suppliers. Yeah. Uh, so there's all kinds of creative ways that firms try to leverage and 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 get the power of competition in markets, but. Is there anything else you want to say about what the influence this paper had on how economists think about firms and
1: oh, sure. organization? Well, well it, it, again, the, so the, 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 and we'll, we'll talk about this in an even broader context in a moment, I'm sure, but the underlying insight here is the importance of transaction costs. Uh, until the nature of the firm was published, economists paid little attention to transaction costs. I, in fact, I don't know that they paid any, any attention to them at all. I, uh, I confess I haven't read... Marshall's book on, on industry. Uh, maybe it's in there. But certainly, the nature of the firm brought to the fore the importance of transaction costs. Uh, if the, Oliver Williamson, one of the co-winners of the 2009 Nobel Prize, uh, much of his work is built on and, and is inspired by Ronald Coase's work. And the generalization that has occurred, uh, which Coase noted and and uh uh was was proud of is that it became uh a theory of commercial contracting we have all sorts of you know we we initially think of it first okay firm versus not firm well you have different kinds of contracts um a franchise contract for example the mcdonalds down the street may be owned by mcdonalds probably not it's probably owned by uh uh a, a separate individual or a separate company. It's
0: an innovation, it, but that, and that so, structure.
1: And so where, where Coase's insight has been taken since 1937 uh, by Oliver Williamson, uh, by Armin Alchin and Harold Demsetz, uh, by many others, uh, is in the direction of, ex- of, of explaining the contours of contracts and the details of contracts that otherwise would remain mysterious Absent COSA's insight into transaction costs, why why have franchise contracts, for example? Why? And what is their nature? What, what do we, they what do they contract on? It, what do they care about? What are they worried about? It, it, exactly right. How how do they change over time? Uh, what explains why they change over time? Uh, all of these explanations into the nature of commercial contracting uh, f- find one way or another uh, roots in. Coase's 1937 article, which is an astonishing thing, that considering that a 21-year-old uh, uh, youngster <laughs> wrote that. Yeah, in a field where that that's exist. not the nature it in our really field. There are
0: there are fields where 21-year-olds make important contributions, but not, not often. Usually, not.
1: mathematics, and there's no mathematics. Yeah. This is this is this is just this is a straightforward in, insight. Um, the uh, and, and j- just a quick footnote: the importance of that article. I think I'm correct in saying this. Uh, the importance of that article really took off uh, in 1951, I believe, so some 14 years after it was published, when it was reprinted in the AEA readings on price theory that was edited by George Stigler and, and, and Kenneth Boulding. Uh, I, I, I think it was not, uh, the article was not given the attention uh, that it subsequently got until it was reprinted in that famous reader. And when that famous reader came out, that's when we really see an explosion of work done on the theory of the firm. I'm
0: going to say one more thing about it and get your reaction. A paper we've talked about many times on this program is uh, The Use of Knowledge in Society by Hayek, which is 1945 uh, American Economic Review. So that paper, the theme of that paper is that prices convey knowledge and aggregate knowledge. There's a lot... To be said about that paper, maybe we'll do a podcast on just that paper sometime.: oh, I love that. that that'd yeah. be fun. But that paper was about the power of prices uh, to solve what came to be called the knowledge problem," the fact that a lot of the most valuable knowledge isn't stuff you can look up. It's not stuff you can compile in a, in a report. It's stuck in the heads of people, and how do you leverage that knowledge? How do you get that knowledge to come into play when it's scattered among individual brains scattered across time and space? And what Coase is saying, really, is that there are times when you forego. The timing of these articles is is kind of ironic. Coase is writing in thirty seven, perhaps influenced by conversations with Hayek, as you suggest. But Hayek writes in 1945, and what what Coase is saying before the fact is, is that sometimes you're going to give up that aggregation of knowledge, that ability of prices to convey knowledge, and you're going to solve that problem because you got to solve it. Mm-hmm. And people, you know, there's a whole modern management literature about the culture and history and knowledge of an organization. Yeah. Uh, it's an obsession for a while in the 90s. I don't know if it's still an obsession. I don't follow this literature anymore. But, you know, how does an organization preserve the knowledge embedded in its employees, given that, one, they're scattered around the organization, and two, they die? Three, they transfer, they quit, they get fired, they leave. And they take with them in their embedded in their brain a bunch of stuff. How do you get that knowledge out of them into some sort of accessible way? Of course, you can't. <laughs> There's no easy way to do it. But especially in this context we're talking about, when you give up the the competitive market-driven outcomes that come from competition and price and quality competition, how do you, how does the firm solve that problem? So they have to find a way to solve not solve it, but but deal with those issues.
1: Yeah yeah you know this is was all about trade offs i mean he 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 recognized think there there're no solutions, this is quoting soul now but it's a very Coasean notion that there are no solutions they are trade offs uh you can reduce this cost only by increasing this cost and what you want what you hope is that the reduction in this first cost is greater than the increase in the subsequent resulting higher costs on this other front um and and you 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 just you want to make sure the economy is competitive coast is very clear coast is a very very free market guy uh you want to make sure the economy is competitive so that this this balance is made as as best as possible and when external factors change uh, uh that the, the the balance itself can change to reflect uh changes in 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 external reality
0: and to take a modern day application you talk about changes in external factors. The ability of the internet
1: yes. to allow firms
0: to find out just the most, one of the most simple transaction costs that that arise when you use the outside market, which is what is the price, right? It takes time. You go. You want to go buy a car. You can't look up. Well, what's the price of car now? Well, now we almost can. Yep. A lot of people have access to that information. A lot of people, and I'm thinking really thinking about the supply chain. If you're a firm and you want to. you you want to buy something from the outside, you can very, at a very low cost, very quickly find out two usually very important things. The price itself, there's not a lot of legwork anymore. And secondly, whether people are happy with the the quality. You get a lot of information that before had to be gained with a lot more uncertainty. So you'd expect that to change how firms are organized, what they produce in-house versus outside.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and these things ha- are happening all, all all the time, and so you, you don't want a, you don't want a rigid uh, template for what the world sh- you know quote unquote should look like, uh, except to say that it, it, it should be competitive. Entrepreneurs should be free to experiment with different methods of of org- organization. Uh, uh, Coase wrote or published that paper, "The Nature of the Firm." Uh, you mentioned Hayek, uh, an even deeper paper. Um, Maybe Hayek's most profound paper is his Economics and Knowledge paper, published in 1937, hmm. the same year. And this is when Coase and Hayek are, are, are close together uh, in London. Um, and th- what those papers share is an appreciation of the, let me use a modern term, sort of the pixelization of knowledge. You know, the yeah. knowledge is not a whole. Uh, It's spread out. It has to be captured. It has to be utilized. Different people utilize it differently. People have some different subjective reactions to it. Um, You can see in Kosa's work a lot of Hayekian influences, which themselves you know, may may, may just be, uh, uh, both from Hayek and Kosa's perspective, the results of of the the intellectual climate at the LSE in the 1930s.
0: Yeah, London School of Economics. Um, Before we we're gonna move on now, I think, to the, to another paper, but I want to mention that longtime listeners will recognize that we've talked about the nature of the firm in lots of other podcasts. We'll put up links to it, but uh certainly we did a pie I did a podcast with Mike Bunger on it. Uh and uh it may have come up in other places. I, I think it did, along obviously with the with the actual interview with with uh, Ruth Ronald Coase in 2012. Uh let's move on. Let's uh move on to the problem of social cost, which was Uh, It really, I I think it's—is it the single most cited paper in economics? It was.
1: It was for a very long time. Uh, It would not surprise me if it still is the single most cited paper published in any economics journals, published in the Journal of Law and Economics. Uh, There's a great story behind that paper. George Stigler relates the story in his in his 1988 uh, autobiography, Memoirs of an Unregulated Economist. And the story is that. uh, uh, Coase at the time when he wrote it, he was at, on economics faculty at the University of Virginia with Jim Buchanan and Gordon Tullock and Leland Yeager. And he presented it in a seminar at Chicago. And, of course, of course he sent it on ahead of time. And there was a, um, a, a, a dinner party the night before the presentation. I've heard different stories. I can't remember which one Stigler says. Either at the apartment of Aaron Director or the apartment of Milton Friedman. But anyway, you had f- many future Nobel Prize winners there. Coase himself... Uh, Milton Friedman, George Stigler, uh, Aaron Director was there many other luminaries, Alan Wallace in in, in the economics profession. And Stigler says that uh, when Coase arrived, when, when Ronald arrived at the at the dinner party, there was only one person in this room of twenty odd people who thought that Coase was correct. Everyone, all these people were were astonished that a careful economist like Ronald Coase could get something so fundamentally wrong.
0: That one person, of course, being.
1: The, 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 one, the only, one, only person <laughs> who believed that Coase was correct was Coase. Uh, and Stigler said by the end of the evening, uh, everyone in the room understood that Coase was correct. So here, here you have an insight that, that today, when, when, when we talk about it, it's going to sound almost trivial. And yet some of the greatest economic thinkers in history, uh, uh, when they first encountered it, it was so unbelievable to them, so unfamiliar, that they rejected it out of hand. Ronald Coase cannot possibly be correct. By the end of the evening, they all knew that he was correct. Stigler called it the most exciting intellectual evening of his life. Uh, this discussion of Coase's problem, of social cost paper. There's a prelude to that paper, and that's the work that Coase did on. Uh, Coase by the way was British, although he spent much of his he spent his most productive. Uh, uh, Years of his professional career at, at either the University of Virginia or or University of Chicago, so in the United States, he did a 1959 paper on the Federal Communications Commission, and one part of that paper involved the allocation of the elect- electromagnetic spectrum. How do we how do we allocate it? And Kose, for radio, for radio, or or, or I can't DVD. remember for radio or television yeah. for, for use of of, of, Broadcast of broadcasters, of and you know Coase. You realize that you know it, we don't. You, regulators don't really have to worry too much about getting it right. I mean, just just you know, create property rights in it, uh, make sure those property rights are secure, and then we can trust the forces of the market to ensure that that each piece of the electromagnetic spectrum, uh, if it's not initially possessed by its most valued owner, will eventually wind up at its most valued owner. This is simply an a, 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 an application of things we recognize about. The, the, the economy in a routine way. If you value uh, my watch more than I value it, uh, you'll offer me a price for it, and I'll sell it to you. That, no one thinks that. that's astonishing. This happens all the time. It's very routine. And Coe said, uh, look, that same, those same market forces operate for um, uh, non-tangible property rights in the same way that they operate for tangible things. Uh, And that's the fundamental, that's one of the fundamental insights of the 1960 paper, The Problem of Social Cost. So the thing, the the proposition that, uh, or I assume it's a proposition that that Stigler referred to. By the way, Stigler is the person who named it the Coase Theorem. Unfortunately. Uh, Yes. uh, To Uh, some extent. uh, the, the, the The proposition was that uh, if, if transactions costs are sufficiently low, some people say if they're zero. It they doesn't have to be zero. If they're just sufficiently low, people can transact. If transactions costs are sufficiently low, uh, then the legal authority, whoever that may be, a court, a bureaucracy, uh, an all-powerful monarch, it doesn't matter. The legal authority, if, if that legal authority's goal is economic efficiency, that's a big if. But if the and we'll come back to that, yeah. The legal authority's goal is economic efficiency, and transactions costs are sufficiently low. The legal authority needn't worry himself, herself, itself terribly much about how to initially allocate the thing. Who do I give it to? Do I give it to this, these people over here? Just just create property rights in it, give them out. It doesn't matter really who, who you give them out to. Those property rights will eventually wind up in the hands of the people who value them most, who can put them to the best economic use. If I'm given uh, a part of the electromagnetic spectrum and I'm a terrible broadcaster, if I, if I think that the best you know, thing to, to broadcast is cricket noises, uh, and then you think the best thing to broadcast is you know pop music, then eventually you'll purchase from me the my, my part of the electromagnetic spectrum, because you can put it to better use than I can. Now, if transactions costs are sufficiently high, then it does matter how property rights are initially
0: Expensive to negotiate it. We can't find each other. Yes. It's hard to, yeah. Well, it's, okay. So this up to here, of course, on the surface, this looks like the flip side of the nature of the firm because it basically says, you know, if if costs are low, just use the market. Mm-hmm. Don't don't don't. Things are going to let the invisible hand work. Let let competition and other things work. But of course, to me, um, that's the, uh, and I learned this from Deirdre McCluskey when I was. Uh, a uh, first-year grad student at Chicago, the transaction costs aren't zero, and they're often not sufficiently low. So to me, the inside of the Coase theorem is not that one. Now, that is not...
1: Well, that is the Coase theorem. The inside of the Coase's so-called- <laughs> paper <laughs> yeah. is not that. And Coase has said many times over the years... This, he
0: did on Econ talks as well.
1: And he very much regretted that the Coase... What's known today as the Coase theorem... Uh, is regarded as the main takeaway from that paper. Because Uh,
0: it became a straw man. It became a way for people to dismiss the paper by saying, well, since transaction costs, they're not zero. They're never zero. Therefore, this whole paper is just a curiosity, an oddity. So before we do the second half of what Coase really thought was the deep insight, which I agree is the deep insight, it's worth noting that that dinner party where people didn't accept it. They didn't accept that first one.
1: <laughs> they, didn't, they, they, they didn't accept that first one. And, and, and it's, it, it's, it's a curious thing to reflect on. You know, it's, once, once it's stated, it becomes obvious. Why would people be any less uh, willing and able uh, to exchange uh, disembodied property rights uh, than they are willing to exchange physical Things, if the transactions costs in both cases are sufficiently low, they'll do it. Now, in in both cases, the transactions costs might not be sufficiently low, but there's nothing fundamentally there's nothing fundamental about property rights per se that makes them uh, a a, a different thing to exchange than physical things. And so that's the first part. That's really the simplest part of Coase's article. Let me say I think Coase, in a way. Uh, overreacted to the popularity of the Coase theorem notion. I do think it is a, an important insight.
0: It right, shouldn't be neglected.
1: It shouldn't <laughs> be neglected. Right. It is an important... They're, 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 transactions costs are sufficiently low in many, many instances. Uh, I think in the case of the ele- electromagnetic spectrum, they're probably sufficiently low. Um, this There's a pretty well-organized... Mo- I, I think there's a pretty well-organized market in, in 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 those sorts of things. And if CBS owns more of the electromagnetic spectrum than NBC, and NBC can put it to better use. They both have incentives to, 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 to transfer uh, uh, that part of the electromagnetic spectrum that can be better used by NBC from, from CBS. Uh, we see transactions taking place every day. So transactions costs often are sufficiently uh, low. Um,
0: and to take an example... In many cases. To yeah. take a... To take a I, I never really thought about it, but it, it, in a way, you know, Coase is just saying economics... Markets work. Yes. Which, right, uh, costs are low. Again, it sounds trivial and simple. But to take another example, um, Julian Simon, who uh, we both have a great deal of uh, respect for, his solution to the fact that airlines have an incentive to overbook, but that imposes a cost on them because sometimes somebody gets bumped and is angry. So they have to be very careful of how they do that. They came up, Julian Simon came up with the idea of, well, let's just, Allow they should overbook, because there's advantages of not having empty seats. And if it turns out that too many people show up, then you can auction off the, and they don't literally auction them off, they basically say the first three people who come forward are going to get a free ticket, and now both parties are better or three parties are better off. The airline, the person who was bumped, and the person who still gets to stay on the flight who who didn't have a seat. And that is, in a way, that's the Coase theorem in action, because what if you're sitting before this, before this innovation, you're sitting there thinking, I really want to go to, to, to uh, Chicago, but it's sold out. I need to find somebody who's on that flight, who's willing to, to, to get off the flight. And, of course, that's really hard to do. Yeah. Uh, you knock on doors of people who, who travel to Chicago. You call up the airline and say, who's going to Chicago? I can outbid and what this does is it's a way to allow that to happen in a low transaction cost way
1: it's it's uh, i hadn't thought about it it's, it's, it's a good point it, it's that uh 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 need that de- desirable action that useful action is integrated that, into the firm the airlines correct. the correct. airlines take it over correct. um and it 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 again it doesn't work perfectly nothing works perfectly uh but it works pretty smoothly so Coase... um As with the firm, Coase wanted to explain the things we observe routinely in reality that seem at odds with basic theory. The firm seemed at odds with basic theory. If markets work so well, why have firms? The law as it exists, Anglo-American law at least, in in the one that Coase was looking at, uh, why is its structure as it is. What, what explains the details of nuisance law and property law and contract law? Uh, is, what Coase was driving at in the problem of social cost, one of the things he was driving at it's a really deep, multi layered paper. One of the things he was driving at was that uh, uh, because we live in a world where, where transactions costs are often sufficiently high to block what would otherwise be mutually advantageous exchanges. The law itself takes on a character. The law itself takes on details. It takes on contours. Uh, It takes on substance that is best explained, just like the firm, as uh, uh, institutions to deal with these transactions costs, to minimize the ill consequences of transaction costs.
0: And in particular, he was interested in what economists call externalities, where mm-hmm. my actions either Social harm costs, you yeah. or or help you, and why is it in those situations some legal structures make more sense than others? So let's talk about some of those examples and and what comes into play with transaction costs and what he was trying to explain.
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, well, of course, the most famous example is the, the the rancher and the the farmer. So. You, Excuse me. The railroads and the and the farmers. So you have railroads going through a field. Uh, that's a socially useful activity, but railroads throw off sparks, uh, and sparks always run a risk of igniting crops growing nearby. So the railroad imposes a cost on the farmer. Now that's how it's normally said. That's how we normally think about it. Uh, so we we need a way to to deal with this
0: but we need a way to protect the farmer from the harm of the railroad is the way it's usually said so we got to punish the railroad for
1: yes. it's actions. and so so the the first pass at this you know if the transaction cost between the railroad and the farmer are sufficiently low right then the law the, the law doesn't matter that much right
0: explain Bec- what the law would be the two the different choices that the, the law be all the law have to be. do
1: is, is, is simply declare one or the other as owning the right okay mr railroad you have the right to to run your your train by or Mr. Farmer you have the right to be free of sparks if they can bargain then uh the the rare, let, let's say the farmer is given the right this is the coase theorem I'll say the farmer is given the right if the, va- the, the 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 railroad will buy from the farmer the right to run trains across or near his near that farmer's land up to the point where the value to the railroad of running that that that, that train uh uh, uh, is is equal to the value the, the risk to the farmer of of having his crops burned. The farmer will be willing to sell to the railroad the right to, to impose a co- to 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 run the risk of burning its its crops. And the th- same thing would work if the railroad had been given the right. The farmer, uh, if it was more valuable to keep the railroad away, the farmer would pay the railroad. To, to, to stop,
0: Or to put up some barriers that would to, keep the harm y- from happening. Yeah, so that, that, yeah. That's another way to think about this. Yeah. The, the, the lowest
1: cost ways of dealing with these things would, would emerge. And that's really important, though, because, yeah.
0: because we don't know what the lowest cost way, the regulator might not know, so for me one of the insights yes. of the Coase theorem yeah. is, do you impose a regulatory solution from the top down or do you let it emerge from the bottom up? And what Coase was suggesting was that if, and again if, if transaction costs are relatively low, a low-cost solution will emerge through the natural interplay of these negotiations. And, and then the parties will have the incentive to improve that going forward.
1: Yes. It, it, this part of, of Coase's paper is, is, is a powerful defense or a powerful explanation of the importance of secure property rights. People are secure in their property rights, uh, and they can exchange those properties. They have incentives. To either exchange them if they can, or to take steps to minimize the damage to them, or put another way, to, in, to 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 maximize their value. You don't need a top-down regulator saying do this or do that, don't do this, don't do that. People will do that on their own. Uh, it's a really powerful, powerful insight. Uh, but a deeper insight, a deeper insight, and, and this is one that Coase also emphasized. But it's it's. Uh, uh, just so deep i i think it still is not sufficiently appreciated is the um, mutuality of harm yeah uh when when we talk about externalities we, we economists talk about externalities uh we 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 typically for whatever reason we it seems easy to identify the harmer and the harm me the or the lawyers the would say and the, the perpetrator, the, yeah the, or the, the 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 tortfeasor and the tort victim right uh but Co. said, look, it's not that easy. Um take the railroad farmer example. It looks like the railroad is imposing costs on the farmer. But let's face it, the suppose suppose the railroad had been there first and then the farmer came by and started growing crops. Right? Well then then why don't we say the the, the the farmer is responsible for his own damage? It's true the the, the sparks physically come from a passing train uh locomotive, but the farmer himself has some responsibility for where he sets up his crops, where he grows his crops. It's not clear that the, all the causality runs from railroad to farmer in terms of the, the harm. We have to look at it both ways. And when we recognize that all harm is mutual, uh, then it's easier to recognize that the appropriate adjustment, uh, uh, it, 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 the appropriate adjustment is not obvious. It's not Correct. necessarily the case that the railroad should stop running as many trains or that the railroad should but take maybe steps. Maybe
0: it should be that the farmers shouldn't grow it, close to the railroad. That may be the cheapest way to yes. cope with this problem.
1: Yes, it, that's exactly right. And so one insight, one of many insights, particular insights from this, is that Coast would predict, or did predict, that the... The the, the, the the manner in which the law actually classifies a perpetrator as distinct from a victim is that the perpetrator is is the the party that the law determines somehow uh, is is the lowest cost avoider of the harm uh, if the railroad can avoid the harm at a much lower at a lower cost than can the farmer then when the railroad Runs his trains by, the, we say the railroad causes the harm. Uh, and so the railroad should be the party responsible for taking steps to to minimize the harm. If, on the other hand, the determination made of the farmer is the lowest cost avoider, then we say the, the farmer avoids, uh, the, the farmer uh, is, is the perpetrator, and the farmer should take, should take the steps.
0: Well, you know, and I teach this, I, I say, I sum it up by saying it takes two to tango. Yes. And, uh, the idea that externalities are mutual, uh, this mutuality you're talking about is disturbing. It jar- it's jarring, uh, because we often want to and sometimes should impose a moral judgment on harm, right? So if, if I came and I, and I hit you in the face with, uh, my fist and, and that annoys you, you could say, I, if you're not careful, you can say in a Kosian way, well, it's your problem. You should, you should enjoy it or it's, you should just say it's no big deal or it's just as much your problem as mine. And we, we all re, were repulsed by that logic correctly. And so one of the, I think one of the most powerful aspects of Coase is taken to an extreme. I think it's dangerous to say, well, all we care about is minimizing the cost. That's not true. We do care about many times something more than minimizing the cost. We care about morality. We care about justice. But at the same time, what Coase forces you to acknowledge is that sometimes the morality you impose on an economic situation is false. It's not just <laughs> a different metric; it's wrong. It 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 allows you, it opens your mind to the possibility that you haven't imagined that there's a different way to handle this social problem. That's right. And the example I used, I may have used it on the program in the past. And really I apologize. Is that if you're hiking in a uh, in uh, in Montana? You will encounter horse manure, and it's your job to avoid it. Uh, no one expects the horse owner to clean up after his horse, although in Manhattan the horse wears a diaper mm-hmm. in Central Park <laughs> mm-hmm. because it's been it's been culturally emerged or it may be legal, but I think it's cultural that there it's un it's unpleasant it's unexpected so but in M- montana there's no moral blame placed on the horse owner if you step in his the, the output of his horse, that's your problem. Why weren't you more careful? In the city streets of Chicago, and when I was there in the winters and springs of, of, and, and falls of, of, of the 19, late 1970s, dog owners did not clean up after their dogs. Your job, everybody understood it was culturally totally acceptable to leave that on the street and only a fool would step in it. Keep your eye out. Keep, keep a lookout. And, Today, that's not true. That's culturally changed for a bunch of reasons. Some of it's technology, I think, the cheapness of plastic bags, and a hundred other yeah, reasons.
1: Yeah, be- better understanding of, of, of the transmission of diseases, all sorts of things.
0: And, and a similar point about, uh, it's the same point. Again, th- these examples are, are there's, and you start seeing the Coast theorem everywhere after you've started to think about it. The When I travel, when I spend the summer in California, in California, uh, it's the driver's responsibility not to hit pedestrians. Pedestrians in California are extremely aggressive. They're much more likely to cross the street uh, carelessly because they're aware of the culture there. You come back to the East Coast and it's walker beware and drivers are less careful. And so if you've been out walking in California for a summer, if you grew up in California and you moved to, to New York or, or to Manhattan or Washington, D.C., you better you better be careful. Yeah. Because there's a different set of expected norms about whose responsibility it is, who owns property rights in the street. Yeah. And the cultural norm in, in Washington, D.C., in New York, is the driver owns the road. And in California, it's much more the pedestrian owns the road. And there's nothing moral about that. Your, your first thought is, well, of course it's the, it's the driver's responsibility not to hit people. And it is. True. But it's a question of, there's a continuum of care, which is another insight you get from Coase. It's, it's it's an incredibly yes. rich paper.
1: Yeah, um, it, there's a flip side to the important point you made, and that is our m- moral assessments are surprisingly determined by these economic factors. Uh, we we regard the person if you hit me in the face is un- unprovokedly. You punch me in the face. It's true, in a very technical sense, that we both caused it. My face is—if my face weren't here, correct—it wouldn't hit her. If I had moved it, then your punch wouldn't have landed on my. Yeah, I'm just
0: swinging my arm. You should have stepped aside.
1: But, 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 morally, we reckon. If if you want to reduce it, the economics—you are clearly the low-cost avoider. I'm not expecting (laughs) you to hit me in the face. You swing. You're the low-cost avoider. Therefore, the blame does—the moral blame falls. Our very moral senses uh, are determined in large part by transaction costs. Uh, it's, Correct. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't like that because we like to separate it's morality. It's
0: unsettling. So on this issue of morality and how the costs um, play a role reminds me of this issue that arose when uh, legislation introduced tradable emissions coupons uh, for sulfur dioxide. And a lot of environmentalists were offended by this because, uh, because of the morality of it. They said a, a firm shouldn't be able to buy the right to pollute polluting is harmful and i don't care you know we, we don't we don't care about the efficiency or the other things it's just wrong so that that's just immoral and economist's reaction was very different
1: yeah well i mean you know, that, that that particular issue i mean it's, it, it arises in, in in different uh, related circumstances uh, the economist says, "Well, w- w- well, yeah, but pollution is not without benefits. I mean, it, it's it's the it's the byproduct of a, ver- of a beneficial process. And so, if you think that pol- pollution is not immoral because it has it has the thing that produces it has beneficial consequences, why would you necess- why would you assume, as a matter of morality, that the that that the harm is necessarily at the margin, necessarily greater?" Than the benefit. I mean, do you want to live in a society without any pollution? You can do that uh, without any industrial pollution, but but we'd have no pharmaceuticals, we'd have no uh, uh, petroleum fuel, we'd have a very different lifestyle. Our, our lives would be much more miserable. And so the economist points to the benefits of at least the processes that pollution goes. Economists, and Coase is very good at this, by the way, economists Dismiss that kind of talk of morality uh, more easily than do other people because we recognize that that there are costs and benefits to almost any action.
0: And in this case, where the firm quote buys the right to pollute, it's going to ultimately almost always end up passing those costs on to consumer the consumer of the product. Who I would argue morally is the person who should pay for it.
1: Yes. yes. So if
0: there is pollution, it's Excellent that's the way point. it should be. Excellent. Point. And and people say, yeah, well they they should pay for it, not the firm. Well, the firm, don't worry. They they do pay for it. Um yeah. not the firm. So uh I wish we could talk some more about this. Uh I've been meaning for a long time to write an essay on it, uh, on the Coast paper and the insights, to the things I've learned from Coase. Uh I have a preliminary version of that up on the uh, Library of Economics and Liberty website and and you can, a related paper to it at least, and we'll put a link up to that. Uh, it's uh, on the Napster issue that arose, which has to me is an application of Coase's insights. But uh, we're going to move on. It's late in the, in the day. Uh, we've got about maybe 10 more minutes. I want to talk briefly about the other two papers, the marginal cost controversy and the Lighthouse in Economics. So let's take five or so minutes for each one to summarize why they were important.
1: The marginal cost controversies in 1946 paper, and it has a, it's a, a very, like all of Coastal papers, it has this very simple insight. Economists will, will argue, say, well, you know, uh, efficiency requires uh, output up to the point of, of uh, where, where marginal cost um, equals, equals price.
0: And define marginal cost. Mar-
1: marginal cost is the cost of producing one additional unit. A little of, bit more. A, a little bit more, one additional unit of output. Right. and So, there was this famous example back in the 40s, it's still famous, uh, the, the, the uncongested bridge, right. And so, what should be the price of crossing an uncongested bridge? Say a motorist crossing an, which should be the toll? Well, says the naive economist, it should be zero. Because the cost of you know, putting aside the small wear and tear, right, that's de minimis. Uh, the cost of crossing an uncongested bridge is zero, and so that person shouldn't be charged a price. Because if, 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 they shouldn't it,
0: be discouraged from crossing.
1: They shouldn't be. You want them to cross. That's, that's exactly the right. right. If you charge a toll, you'll have less, fewer people crossing the bridge. You'll have, you'll have a social inefficiency. People who would get more value from crossing the bridge will be dissuaded from doing it, even though the social cost to them of crossing the bridge, uh, uh, is 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 less than the value that they would get, so we can't have, uh, pri- we can't have positive pricing of such things. And Coase, this article too, we won't have time to get into it. This article too is a multi-layered article uh, with many deep insights. But the one I like best, and I don't think, I don't think other people have made it. But Coase made it in a particularly clear way. He said, "Look, um, one purpose of pricing. Remember, Coase was a student of Hayek." One purpose of pricing is not simply to—prices uh, convey information. It's not simply to allocate goods and services. They convey information. And so if we allow bridge owners to charge to- what the market will bear, right, then yes, if a bridge is uncongested and you have a positive price, say $2 to cross, um, if you look only at the individual drivers, some of them who should— quote-unquote, should cross, won't cross, social inefficiency. However, if we force the price down to zero, as some economists advocate, because that's a socially efficient price, we lose the informational content of the price. We lose the informational content of how valuable is it to build new bridges, how valuable right. is it to expand bridges. And, and so Coase, a year after uh, the use of knowledge in society, Coase is pointing out in the marginal cost controversy, the important informational role of pricing and how that information would be uh, uh, sacrificed, uh, destroyed, uh, if some of the more naive economists' uh, solutions uh, for efficiency were were implemented. If 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 uncongested bridges, as an example, or other things you could, that, that apply, if if the price were forced down to marginal cost, and where the marginal cost here is zero, Coast, Coast said no. Price should be what the market Will bear,
0: but how do you do that in the case of a bridge where maybe the government built the bridge, government setting the toll? Where are you going to get this informational value if in that setting? Well, he was
1: talking. He, he, I guess imagine. I can't remember exactly. Imagine private bridges. If you have a private bridge owner, the it's it's not inefficient for the private bridge owner to charge what the market will bear, even in uncongested uh, times, uh, because the efficiency of the uh, information conveyed by prices has to be to weighed, other
0: potential bridge. To other pate- yeah, it
1: has to be weighed against the, the, uh, inefficiency of dissuading at the margin some people who should cross the bridge from, from crossing the bridge. Coase went on in the paper, he discussed multi-part pricing schemes, uh, and, and explained the value of those and how they are superior to, um, uh, top-down regulation or outright subsidies.
0: Mm-hmm. And what about the lighthouse? Which I have to say, when I read it in graduate school, I thought it was—I think it was probably my favorite paper in many ways because it's so simple. It's a little historical episode, and uh, it's eye-opening. It's a fabulous paper, and I thought this—this this is this is this is the greatest. It's
1: very careful economic history done by done by. Most people don't think of Coase as an economic historian, but he, he he did do. and This certainly was an economic history paper, uh, and he was he was taking aim at. Uh, standard textbook economics, as he did so often. And by the way, I forgot, it has to be mentioned, the
0: problem of social cost was in many ways a reaction to Pigou.
1: Oh, we forgot really to mention. disliked Pigou's work.
0: <laughs> yeah, so yeah. the so-called Pagovian tax, which is that when you have a negative externality, you should impose a tax on the so-called perpetrator, the apparent perpetrator, uh, was what Coase was reacting to, saying yes. that sometimes that's not always the right policy. And I mention that only because the Pigovian tax of um, uh, carbon tax is often mentioned as the way to, quote, solve global warming. And I think what Coase would have said, and maybe he said it, uh, and I think I, I probably mentioned on this program, is that that's one way to solve it. It might not be the best way. The best way might be to let global warming occur, if indeed it's happening, and to let human beings respond to it. And that might be cheaper. Than foregoing current output, the, which the tax will, will produce.
1: Coase said basically, look, the world's a lot more complicated than your simple theory, you Mr. Pigou, you. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, it's not too much of an exaggeration to say that much of Coase's work, certainly after 1937, was a reaction to um, naive Pigouvian uh, blackboard theory. Yeah, uh, it looks very nice. It's all very scientific, but Coase understood that the real world has complexities in it that most economists overlook when they do their theories. So coming kind of so back to the lighthouse, sir. So you know, it's it's it, the light, A lighthouse is a very standard public good. You know, the lighthouse is erected on the shore. It casts its beam, and uh, any boat that wants to use any any boat that needs guidance uh, in storms or or, or, or or darkness to a harbor can look at the look at the beam. So the reasoning goes in the standard textbook, Paul Samuelson is a textbook that, that Coase singled out, or well, one of the ones that he singled out in his article. Uh, reason, Well, so no private owner has an incentive to build a lighthouse because um, they can't charge for the benefit. You can't exclude
0: everybody the, can free ride. Everybody who can say, well I won't pay
1: because then I'll just I can still get the light. And Coase said, well let's look at the actual history of lighthouses in Great Britain. And he did that. He looked at the actual history of lighthouses in Great Britain. And what he found, it, it, it's too simple to say that what he found was that, oh yes, they were all built by private enterprise and things. And all right. Sometimes
0: uh, it gets par- parodied that way, either yes. by its proponents who love that conclusion. Yes. Uh, people don't tend to be market oriented like us, or by the antagonists who, Want to challenge Coase's thing and say that that's what he said? That's not what he said. That's not
1: what he said. But, As always, <laughs> but but he he showed that in the in the history of lighthouses in Great Britain, uh, uh, it was it was uh, in, in many cases driven by private enterprise. Uh, the the contractual arrangements that harbor builders and 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 dock or harbor uh, people who manage harbors would arrange with boats, with ships coming in, were ingeniously come, in, in, ingeniously designed, uh, to enable, uh, lighthouses to collect fees, uh, to allow the suppliers of lighthouse services to collect fees for the provision of those services. The naive view that a lighthouse is a straightforward public good for which, uh, unless it's provided outright by government and funded exclusively through, tax through taxation and, and and lighthouses in great early on in great britain were not funded ex- in, in this way they were funded by i forget the term harbor fees they were funded in large part by fees that boat owners did pay um, and 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 so this is an example of coast section well let's, let's let's look at the history and the, the the history of lighthouses is far more complex than you get by reading a standard the, the, the notion you get by reading a standard textbook about a lighthouse.
0: And I want to bring that insight back to um, a related problem, which is common property, common resource property, which, of course, the ocean is. Um, one of the, the challenges of the lighthouse is you, you can't, if you wanted a purely private profit-making entity to provide it, I can't say, well, my lane, this shipping lane will be illuminated by the lighthouse, the other ones won't. Or only people who pay for it, as you say. Mm-hmm. I, I can't exclude the non-payers from the value of the beam at the lighthouse, so the implication is it can't be provided privately. Similarly, people would say, well, with common resource property, uh, there's an ex- incentive to overgraze the sheep, overfish the ocean. So uh, o- common resource property has to be government regulated. Mm-hmm. And what... Eleanor Ostrom argued, and we did it uh Pete Betke did a a nice episode of you talk on this topic uh, on ostrom's insights and what, and others who have worked on this is that okay there's something in between this market versus government solution, and my my view is that that's the wrong uh dichotomy we should really be thinking about bottom up versus top down yes.
1: yes.
0: top down or or a distinction I learned from Dan Klein, coercive versus voluntary. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of voluntary solutions to lots of problems. They're not profit-maximizing or or what we would normally think of as private enterprise, mm-hmm. but they're privately agreed to. So essentially in these two cases we're talking about, the lighthouse and the fishing of of common resource property, norms emerge about what's acceptable behavior by the participants yes. that aren't government-run. They're not what we would think of as quote private enterprise but they're voluntary and they're bottom up. Yep. So in the case of of say lobster traps in New England, yep, where yes, there's an incentive to fish all the lobsters and then you've ruined the you've killed the goose that lays the golden eggs to to mix animal meta- <laughs> <laughs> metaphor, sorry, but obviously the lobster people understood that they're not idiots. So there was a natural incentive for them to find ways to work together. And in that case there were norms emerged about property rights that aren't enforced in traditional ways, they're enforced in traditional ways, but not through government, not through police, Mm -hmm. not through the state. Uh, There were certain norms that emerge about who's allowed to take what, when, what you keep, what you throw back, and those norms are enforced by social interactions. The fact that the lobster people hang out together and somebody who cheats on the deal is then uh, pushed out and and is a, a pariah. So similarly, Yes, once a, a set of agreements is reached about paying for a lighthouse, a person can come along and, and free ride on it. Yeah. And if you do, you're not gonna have any friends. Yep. The people at the dock are gonna be are gonna sabotage your boat. There's a thousand things that are gonna happen. You don't have to do it through the state. And and again, to make to make it as coasting as possible, you want the solution, whether it's the government run solution or the emergent solution that's voluntary or some hybrid. To so be the one that minimizes costs, yeah. not necessarily the one – it's not necessarily a theoretical thing that emerges out of the blackboard. The,
1: the, the a couple of closing thoughts. I know we're getting near the end. It, it, it's not – I think it's appropriate to summarize Coase's life work, or a, a, a theme. So it's a Hayekian theme. Uh, as, as saying, look – if you try a social engineering solution, you could have the most elegant, co- Coase called it blackboard economics, and, and, he, and that was a derisive term for him. You have the most elegant model, right? And you can and and and, and put aside, you know, public choice sorts of problems with bad incentives. Uh, uh, you have knowledge problems. Your elegant model imposed in the best possible way on reality will always be too simple for reality. Reality, if Bottom-up forces are allowed to percolate and operate. They will always devise more nuanced uh, 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 ways of dealing with the problem that outperform your elegant engineering models. Your your Pigouvian tax looks nice on paper. Your Pigouvian tax won't work as well as letting uh, bottom-up uh, methods of, of dealing with these externalities operate. Um, shifting gears just a little bit, uh, you're right. The 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 market versus government dichotomy is mistaken.
0: Or and, and the way I think the worst way to think about it is
1: profit versus social good. Even better. Uh, and I think the last podcast we did was on Jim Buchanan, there's a connection here with Jim Buchanan. Jim Buchanan's presidential address to the Southern Economic Association, which was published, I think, in, in 19, it was 1963, um, called "What Should Economists Do." Uh, Buchan- and Buchanan published this, wrote this, when he was a, still a colleague uh, with Coase, I believe, at, at UVA, University of Virginia. Uh, Buchanan makes that point very clearly, and he, he, he gets, it, 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 it. people miss it. I don't know why. Buchanan is very clear that good economic theory is not just about uh, profits. Good economic theory is about ex- explaining what we observe people doing. Of course, Buchanan was most famous by observing what people did in the political sphere. But in this article, he talks about um, uh, private yet non-profit ways of of, of dealing with social problems. Things that Eleanor Ostrom uh, uh, researched and won a Nobel Prize for. Civil Society. She shared shared the Nobel Prize with with Oliver Williamson, uh, who... Of course, was inspired probably most singly by the by the work of Ronald Coase. Um, the the it, it's 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 it, people get away too frequently with uh, saying, "Oh, well, yes, markets are fine if they're perfectly competitive, if all private property rights are well defined, and if transactions costs are zero or very low." But this is not the world we live in. Therefore, we and Ronald Coase more than anybody. His work is a re- is 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 an assault on that simplistic way of looking at the world. Unfortunately, that way of looking at the world remains. It is still the it's dominant way, way that Joe Stiglitz looks at the world. Paul Krugman looks at the and world most, very much that way. Most modern economists. Most modern that, economists. What do?
0: most economists that that Pete Edkey calls uh, mainline. Means, mainline. Mainline. Mainline.
1: Mainline. I get it confused. Yeah. yeah. Mainline. Yeah. Whereas, I think. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, look, it, it, we pass every, everybody in, in, in modern America today daily encounters institutions that no economist using standard, say, Joe Stigletzian economics should, should, should be able to explain. Um, churches. Churches in America, I mean, yes, they get tax deductions, but, 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 but it's they not are decisive. all. No, no. They, uh, these things shouldn't exist. And yet they flourish. Uh, many of them have lots of money. People, People voluntarily, voluntarily contribute the to these things. They, they contribute money, they contribute time and effort. And whether you're religious or not, you can't deny the existence of them, you can't deny the thriving of them, you can't deny the influence of these things. You, cannot ex- you can't deny the dynamism of results
0: the, relative to a top-down solution from a government state-run religion.
1: Larry Iannac- Iannacone, yeah. our former colleague at GMU, worked on this. Uh, and so we see these things every day. This is the kind of thing that Ronald Coase, you, you see these things every day, they, they, and, and they are directly at odds with basic economic theory, with, with, with simplistic mainline economic theory. And we should be, I think the Coasean lesson, we should be more critical of uh, the simplistic theory That we have simple theory, of course, is important, but but we have to be we have to exercise far better judgment about its application. And what distresses me is the the uh, astonishingly poor judgment that even many prominent economists have about analyzing using their theory to analyze the real world. Coase had judgment on that front unsurpassed. By anyone and matched by very few.
0: My guest today has been
1: Don Boudreau. Don, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Always a pleasure.
0: This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to EconTalk.org where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.